Our church has been blessed with an unusually talented and committed staff. So much is done behind the scenes to sustain our ministry and to provide quality online worship services. Janet Coe, Paul Calabori, Beth Furman bring a lot of time, thought, and energy into the classic worship service. The worship uh, leadership of Jim and Riley Buren really sets the tone for uh, hearing God's word in the second service. Our tech guy, Kyle Berg, brings everything together for a final video publication on the web. And we don't want to forget uh, Leanne Hendrickson, our church administrator, Valen Smith, our children's ministry director, and uh, Teresa Haskins, our bookkeeper, who continue to work hard on our behalf. Many of you have expressed appreciation for these folks through email and notes, and I know you join me in saying thank you for all they do. As a pastor, I couldn't have a better team around me. I am blessed. Now, as we attend to God's word, let us pray. Lord God, you have declared your kingdom is among us. Open our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our hearts to hold it, our hands to serve it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whether we are just starting out in life or getting on in years, we've all wondered just what it is that we're supposed to be doing with the rest of our lives. Who am I and why am I here? What's, what's my mission in life? What's my purpose? And the only way we will ever find and fulfill the central purpose of our lives is to answer God's call. And that call comes to us most importantly as a call to be in relationship with the one who made us and who redeemed us. Remember that we are not so much called to do something in life as to be with someone, to be with God, to walk with him day by day, just as Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the evening in the creation story. He desires our fellowship because he loves us and knows what's best for us. We are made to be in relationship with God, to know him and to be with him is to discover life's highest purpose and its greatest joy. That invitation to personal relationship comes through to us loud and clear in the words of Jesus who says, follow me. Last week, we saw how Jesus issued this invitation to four fishermen, Simon and Andrew, James and John. They left their nets and followed him and their lives were never the same. Essentially, Jesus was calling them to be his apprentices. According to the Miriam um, Webster Dictionary, an apprentice is one who is learning by practical experience under skilled workers a trade, art, or calling. The whole concept of apprenticeship was highly developed in medieval times under the guild system. A teenager would attach himself or herself to a master tradesman for a period of seven to ten years. Invariably, he would live in the master's house or shop and eat with his family. He would wear clothes provided by the master and was subject to the master's discipline. The apprentice, in return, would offer free labor. An apprentice really became part of the master's family, forming a close emotional bond, all for the purposes of learning a skill or trade, to the end that he could then go out on his own as a journeyman and eventually become a master himself. Today, of course, the trades still have an apprenticeship system in place, though obviously not so all-encompassing. To become a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter, one must first become an apprentice to a master and follow that person around, as it were, observing him or her with an eye to doing what the master does. In the same way, when Jesus asks us to follow him, he's essentially calling us to be his apprentices. 
The Greek word that we translate disciple is the word mathiti, which means learner or student or apprentice. Disciples are apprentices. Well, let's take a look at Jesus' appointment of his first trainees and draw some lessons for our own apprenticeship. Reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Note that Jesus personally handpicked his disciples. He appointed them. This was a bit unusual in those days. The, the norm was for a person to voluntarily choose to attach himself to a rabbi or a teacher. You listen to the teacher, and if you liked what you heard, you would decide to become a student of his, and if the teacher approved, you would follow him around and attend his lectures. But here it's different. Here Jesus does the appointing. He calls them. He summons them. He says to Simon and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and all the rest, you come and be my disciples, my apprentices. You did not choose me, he will say to them, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. In the upper room, he will remind them, I have chosen you out of the world. So by deliberate choice, Jesus appointed 12 people to be with him. Two questions immediately come to mind. Why 12? Every Jew would know the significance of the number 12. God's chosen people, the Israelites, were divided into 12 tribes. And as Jesus calls out a new people for himself, he starts with 12 men who will form the basis of a new Israel. And then the second question, why these people? Well, notice whom he didn't call. I mean, uh, not a single rabbi, not a single professional theologian, not a professional holy person to be found, some fisherman, a, a despised tax collector, a political revolutionary, all a bunch of no names, not a star pupil among them, not an up-and-comer in the lot. Jesus also didn't pick a woman, which would have been a huge scandal in that uh, patriarchal society in that day. But that's, that's not to say that he didn't have a lot of disciples who were women beyond the twelve. Indeed, Jesus elevated the status of women. There's a very famous classic work called The Training of the Twelve from the 19th century, written by A.B. Bruce. And uh, Bruce says of the disciples, they were stupid, slow-minded persons. Well, that's just totally unfair, but it's true. I mean, they weren't scholars. But it's, it's strange when you think about it. If you were starting a revolutionary new movement or venture that would change the world, would you have these people on your board? I mean, suppose Jesus had submitted the list of his top 12 choices to a modern-day management cons consultation firm for a personnel evaluation. He might expect to receive a memo that read something like this. Two, Jesus, son of Joseph, the woodcrafter's carpenter shop, Nazareth, 25922, from Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem, 26544. 
regarding personnel evaluations. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computers, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocation aptitude consultant. It's the opinion of the staff that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capacity. We have summarized the findings of our study below. Simon Peter is emotional, unstable, and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no quality of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We believe it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings. Additionally, they both registered high scores on the manic depressive scale. However, one of the candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He's a great networker, has a keen business mind, and has strong contacts in influential circles. He's highly motivated, very ambitious, and adept with financial matters. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and chief operating officer. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you the utmost success in your new venture. Well, clearly, Jesus' ways are not our ways. Uh, he wanted ordinary folks. He didn't choose them because of their extraordinary faith. Their faith was often lacking. He didn't choose them because of their talent and ability. He didn't choose them because they had more leadership potential than others. They had little in the way of education or money. Their only qualification was a, des a desire to follow Jesus with a willing heart. They were open to learn at the feet of the master, and they were willing to go and do what he taught and modeled. So some of us may be tempted to disqualify ourselves from apprenticeship to Jesus, thinking that we don't have what it takes to follow him or to make much of a difference for him in the world. Comparing ourselves with others, we may minimize our talent and the contribution we can make to Christ's cause. We, we may not think we are smart enough or good enough. We may lament our lack of faith. But if Jesus can use the likes of those first appointees, he called to himself, he can use us. Wonder of wonders, he's handpicked you and me to be in his merry band of apprentices. Amazing. Mark says Jesus chose 12 to be with him. At the most basic level, perhaps Mark was saying that in some way or another, Jesus needed the company of these men even as he needed the company of Peter and, and John later on in the Garden of Gethsemane. He needed their fellowship. He needed to have friends. Now, some might say, well, Jesus is in need of no one, for after all, he is the Son of God. Yes, but he was also a man. And in his humanity, it would not be good that he be alone. But Jesus needed these 12 to be with him in another sense, to be with him in order that they might learn from him as they watched him. For three years, the disciples watched the master at work. They listened carefully to his teaching, watched as he interacted with people, witnessed his deeds of love and compassion, and then he sent them out to do what he did, correcting them when necessary. 
And they not only drove out demons, but eventually in the power of the Spirit, they changed the world. What does it mean for you and me today to watch and learn from Jesus as his apprentices? Obviously, Jesus, the master teacher, is no longer here in the flesh to teach us or to model for us the kind of life he wants us to lead. But he comes to us, does he not, in the pages of the Bible as it's read and reflected upon and preached? How precious is the the New Testament witness? He teaches us still as we listen to his words in the Gospels. We can observe his interactions with people. We can watch him in action. To be an apprentice to Jesus is to become a student of Jesus' life in Scripture. And that takes a lot of effort on our part, a lot of hard study. But it should be something that we love to do for the apprentice is eager to learn all he or she can from the Master. And then having learned from the Master, he sends us out to put his teaching into practice following his example. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Are you and I really conscious of our apprenticeship to Jesus in our daily lives? Dallas Willard, who wrote some great books on Christian discipleship, would have us ask ourselves this question. Am I learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live it if he were I? Maybe a simpler way to ask this question is this. What would the master do if he were in my shoes? So if uh, we're at school or at work and a moral or ethical issue came up, we would, as Jesus' apprentice, ask ourselves, what would the master do if he were in my shoes? And then we let his life inform our choices and direct our actions. In this way, we follow him. What would the master do if he were in my shoes? That's a great question to ask ourselves. Of course, it presupposes we know Jesus well enough to know what he would do. We have to have been with Jesus. What would happen if every Christian took his or her apprenticeship to Jesus seriously? I mean, there's something like three billion Christians in the world who call themselves Christians. I mean, what if they really did take their discipleship seriously? What would the world look like? Sadly, there seems to be a strange notion out there in what remains of Christendom that you can be a Christian without being a disciple, without being an apprentice. I mean, it's kind of weird. For many, Christianity is merely a form of fire insurance, but not apparently not so much practical reality to be lived day by day. Faith in Jesus becomes a matter of having your ticket punched for heaven. It's about making the final cut or about being good enough. It seems he is Savior, but not necessarily Lord. This strange notion is so common that that, uh, that Christian people can actually be shocked when believers take their apprenticeship to Jesus seriously. Uh, I love this story told by Will Williman, who was the dean of the chapel at Duke University. Um, While he was dean, he got a call from a very upset parent, I mean, a very upset parent. I hold you personally responsible for this, he said. Me, Will said? Well, the father was hot, upset because his graduate school-bound daughter had just informed him that she was going to chuck it all, throw it all away, was the way the father described it, and go do mission work with the Presbyterians in Haiti. 
Isn't that absurd, shouted the father, a BS degree in mechanical engineering from Duke, and she's going to be digging ditches in Haiti. Well, I doubt that she's received much training in the engineering department here for that kind of work, said Will, but she's probably a fast learner and will probably get the hang of ditch digging in a few months. Look, said the father, this is no laughing matter. You are completely irresponsible to have encouraged her to do this. I hold you personally responsible. As the conversation went on, Dr. Willeman pointed out that the well-meaning but obviously unprepared parents were the ones who had started this ball rolling. They were the ones who had her baptized, read Bible stories to her, took her to Sunday school, let her go with the Presbyterian Youth Fellowship off to camp. Willeman said, you're the one who introduced her to Jesus, not me. But all we ever wanted her to be was a Presbyterian, said the father. Hmm, a Presbyterian, but not an apprentice to Jesus. Jesus has handpicked you and me to be his apprentices, and it's, his, it's this apprenticeship that we must take very seriously. It is, in fact, our most important role in life. And when we do take our apprenticeship to Jesus seriously, he works some pretty serious changes in our lives. Over time, as we follow the Master and as the Holy Spirit holds sway over us, we really do begin to live like Him. We begin to reflect His character in our lives. We begin to share His outlook on life. Our minds begin to reflect His thoughts. Our hearts begin to radiate His compassion. In short, we become more like Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says, The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. This is the goal of apprenticeship, to follow Jesus' example so closely that when others see us, they see not so much us as they see something of Jesus himself. Those who take their apprenticeship seriously will inevitably begin to reflect the one who taught them. Following the master's steps, they will live like him. They won't simply become nicer, with the help of the Holy Spirit, they will become new and different people altogether. One final thought. We will always be apprentices, never masters. I've always thought it a bit of an oxymoron that the basic professional degree for pastors is the Master of Divinity degree, as though divinity can be mastered. No one ever arrives spiritually in this world. Apprentices are forever learning and growing. It never stops. No one ever graduates from the school of Christ. We are always in the master's workshop, a work in process, which is why we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves and others as we seek to follow Jesus. Apprentices are going to make mistakes and fail. The original disciples were always falling down on the job. But that's exactly what you would expect. They were apprentices after all. And the good thing is that, uh, is that um, Jesus will never reject us. There is always more for apprentices to know and learn. C.S. Lewis dramatized this truth in his famous Chronicles of Narnia tales. In one of the stories, the young girl Lucy returns to the land of Narnia, where she again meets the Christ figure, the great lion named Aslan. And upon, upon seeing Aslan, Lucy expresses her, her surprise, saying, Aslan, you're bigger. 
Aslan answers, that's because you are older, little one. Not because you are, responds Lucy. I am not, says Aslan, but every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. And that's how it always is with men and women, boys and girls, who are apprentices of Jesus Christ. As the years come and go, Jesus Christ looms ever larger, ever more central and foundational. May Jesus become so large in our lives that we become just like him, the master teacher, to whom be glory and praise. Amen.